You're listening to the Makers and Mystics Artist Profile Series, Episode 26. Amy Simple McPherson was a celebrity personality and pioneering religious figure active during the 1920s and 30s. She is perhaps most remembered for her larger-than-life theatrical presentations of the gospel and for establishing one of the world's first recognized megachurches. At the height of her fame, Amy's services filled 5,300 seats three times a day every Sunday. She appointed two massive choirs and a 50-piece orchestra to perform musical compositions and sacred operas which she composed. In her services, Amy preached what she called illustrated sermons, accompanied by elaborate set designs and costumes created by Hollywood designers and performed by professional actors. But when Amy first came on the scene, she was a most unlikely candidate for achieving such celebrity status. She was a divorced woman traveling the country by car with her mother and two young children in tow, hosting revival tent meetings with the poor and marginalized of society. During a time when women were not allowed to vote and were often prohibited from preaching, Amy rose to the top as an outspoken, sometimes controversial, itinerant preacher. There's a story told in Daniel Mark Epstein's biography, Sister Amy, about a time when she had been preaching for two nights straight, but no one was attending the meetings. Adorned in her long white dress, Amy left the building carrying a chair in her arms and headed to the street corner. There, she stood on top of the chair with her arms stretched toward heaven like a Roman statue and did not move for close to an hour. Eventually, a crowd of people gathered around this strange spectacle of a beautiful catatonic young woman with her eyes closed and long arms lifted to the heavens. Finally, someone touched her and she broke her trance, turning to the crowd and saying, People, follow me. And when the crowd followed her back into the building, she locked the door behind them and gave her sermon to a literal captive audience. Amy was born October 9, 1890, on a small farm in Ontario, Canada. When her parents were married, her mother Minnie was only 15 years old, while her father, James Kennedy, was 50. They were both deeply religious people working with the Salvation Army and participating in a Methodist congregation. But despite growing up in a strict religious household, Amy performed in local theater productions and won awards for her public speaking at an early age. As a teenager, she developed a reputation as a theater performer whom people would travel for miles to come and see perform. However, Amy's Methodist upbringing caused a conflict with her interest in theater. The Methodists of that day condemned theater and play acting, specifically those performed outside of church functions. Some believed that acting was shameful, only one step above public drunkenness. In fact, Amy's mother believed that even worse than theater were those abhorrent and sinful moving pictures. Church leaders warned Amy that attending the movie theater would lead her to hell. But despite their warnings, Amy did attend the theater, and when she did, she was surprised to see so many others from her church attending as well. This hypocrisy impacted her deeply, and for a time she would consider herself an atheist, although her thirst for understanding wouldn't let her fully concede to there being no God at all. 
Someone had to have designed such a beautiful creation as ours, she thought. Then in 1910, Amy encountered a charismatic traveling evangelist named Robert Simple, whose passionate preaching won her heart back to God and her hand to himself. Amy dropped out of high school, married Robert, and traveled with him playing piano and praying for the sick as he preached in cities around the world. The young couple then left America to embark on an evangelistic mission in China. But this trip would prove fatal and cut off their short-lived romance. Amy was pregnant with their first child when she and Robert came down with malaria. However, Robert's malaria was more severe than hers, and when he also contracted dysentery, the sickness led to his death. Amy was a 19-year-old widow, eight months pregnant, alone and penniless in a hostile foreign country. In her desperation, she reached out to her mother, who sent enough money to bring her home. Amy and her newborn child, Roberta Starr, boarded a ship back to Ontario. There, she spent a year grieving her husband and seeking what was next for her shattered life. The taste for life on the road she had acquired with Robert, conducting meetings where people could encounter the wild and ecstatic presence of God, never left her. She traveled to New York and to Chicago, preaching in the churches her husband had tended. On one of her trips to New York, Amy met the man who would become her second husband, Harold McPherson. But unlike her fiery traveling preacher Robert, Harold was a gentleman with a steady job as a banker who wanted to settle down and raise a family in Rhode Island. So Amy agreed and gave herself to this lifestyle, bearing a son to Harold and living a quiet domestic life as a housewife for as long as she could bear it. But depression and a terrible darkness soon found her, even leading to physical illness and several surgeries. Such a fever of restlessness came upon me, she said. Then from the darkness, Amy heard a voice asking her, Will you go now? So she left her husband on a midnight train and returned again to her family farm in Ontario. When Amy heeded this call, she reported that her physical ailments and depression immediately left her. From Ontario, she wrote a telegram to her husband saying, I tried to walk your way and I have failed. Won't you come now and walk mine? After a time, Harold did join Amy on the road and even supported her meetings. But ultimately, he yearned for the conventional life he had known before and filed for divorce. When Amy first had arrived in Ontario, she bought a white servant's uniform, which she wore in all of her meetings, perhaps as an outward symbol of her inward service to Jesus. She spent the next seven years on the road, zigzagging across the country as an itinerant preacher, living off the proceeds of the collections taking up at her meetings. She traveled from Maine to Florida, sleeping in tents with her mother and small children, but the nomadic life on the road also began to take its toll. She decided to settle down in California and drove for 30 days until she reached Los Angeles. The story is told that Amy and her mother were the first women to drive across the country without the aid of a man. When Amy arrived in Los Angeles, she owned nothing but a tambourine, the clothes on her back, and her gospel car, as she named it, painted with the phrase, Jesus is coming soon, get ready. 
But her situation soon changed. Amy's popularity had become widespread, and within a short two-year period, she had raised enough money to build her gigantic 5,300-seat Angelus Temple debt-free. Amy's penchant for theatrics and creative marketing led her to accomplish promotional feats few others had done. Once, she dropped 15,000 leaflets from an airplane promoting her meetings. On another occasion, she made an announcement at a boxing arena inviting everyone to come watch her knock out the devil. She hired press agents and staged publicity stunts attracting the attention of thousands. She announced her meetings during the intermissions at nightclubs and pool halls and became the first to use radio broadcasting to get her message out. With her increased budget, Amy could take her artistry to new levels, employing professional artists, actors, and designers to collaborate with her. In one of her illustrated sermons, she dressed in a police uniform and rode a motorcycle across the stage to her pulpit. In another, which she titled The Iron Furnace, she cast an estimated 450 people and at other times brought in live animals to participate in the sermons. Amy's brand of spirituality began in rural Pentecostalism. She spoke in tongues, conducted healing services, and appealed to the disenfranchised and to those seeking mystical encounters with the Spirit of God. Against the grain of the societal norms of her day, her meetings were racially, socially, and economically diverse. Her Angelus Temple, for a time, became an ecumenical center for people of all denominations and even included non-Christian civic leaders with whom she built partnerships. Her reach broadened to include Hollywood actors such as Charlie Chaplin, governmental figures, and others in the social elite who held different beliefs than her own. But not everyone admired Amy's inclusiveness and theatrical methods of preaching. Some claimed she was a hypnotist, Others felt she had quenched the spirit and was no longer walking in the purity of her early days. Still many considered her a miracle worker, and the stories of her healings and those who came to faith in Jesus through her theatrics were vast. So vast, in fact, that she built a museum of artifacts to display the mounds of crutches, walkers, and other abandoned apparatuses from those who no longer needed them after attending her healing services. But beyond Amy's spiritual healings and theatrical demonstrations, this prophetic actress also used her platform as a means of tangibly providing for people in need. She collected funds and gave to numerous humanitarian causes, from feeding the poor to providing clothing and creating free health clinics. During the Depression, her welfare institution is said to have given aid to nearly half a million people. But as her influence increased, so did the pressure, the antagonism, and the abiding loneliness within her. It was during this time the most controversial episode of her life emerged. On May 18, 1926, Amy was relaxing on the coast of Venice Beach, accompanied by her secretary. She was finalizing notes for a sermon to be given that evening and sent her secretary to make a phone call, relaying her notes back to the temple. When her secretary returned, Amy had disappeared. Startled and thinking perhaps that Amy had gone for a swim and drowned, her secretary notified the police. Search parties were formed, and over the next month, throngs of people scoured the beaches in search for Amy's body, but she was nowhere to be found.
Newspapers lit up with the story of the missing celebrity. Supposed Amy sightings became a frequent occurrence and letters poured in, demanding money in exchange for information on her disappearance. It became an event which the public was unsure whether it was just another of Amy's outlandish publicity stunts or if something truly terrible had occurred. On June 20th, her followers accepted that Amy was dead and held a memorial service for her at the temple. Three days later, Amy surprised the world when she came walking out of the desert from Mexico into Douglas, Arizona. She knocked on the door of a small cabin and instructed the couple living there to phone the police. She told the story that while on the beach, a man and woman had approached her and asked if she would come to pray for their daughter who was dying. Amy agreed and followed them to their car. But when Amy leaned in the back seat to pray for the child, she was pushed into the car and kidnapped. The couple covered her face with a chloroform pad, knocking her unconscious, and then took her hostage to a shack in the desert. Amy reported that the couple threatened her, tied her up, and burned her fingers. Finally, she managed to break free from them and walked 20 miles through the desert to reach Arizona. The police accompanied her to retrace her steps, but the shack nor the kidnappers were ever found. She was accused of lying and lawsuits were filed against her, though eventually the charges were all dropped. No evidence could be found against her, and she stuck to her story without wavering. But most people believed the story was a fabricated cover-up, hiding a secret affair. Whether the story was true or not, her enemies used the occasion to publicly defame her. Her reputation was tarnished and her personal life underwent tremendous emotional and psychological strain. Through the ordeal, she became estranged from her mother and daughter, her church divided, and financial difficulties further pushed her into the loneliness and isolation that had gripped her soul. Perhaps in an attempt to soothe her numbing loneliness, Amy married again for a third time, this time to actor and musician David Hutton. However, this marriage was short-lived and after several months, David was sued by another woman and filed for divorce. Yet somehow, even in the midst of all of the scandal and the turmoil, Amy mustered enough creative energy to compose her first opera titled Worship the King. She continued to travel, speaking and performing healing services in a presentation called The Story of My Life, although the controversy never settled and as a result, her health declined. On September 27, 1944, Amy Simple McPherson died of an overdose of sleeping pills at the age of 53. Reports first considered her death a suicide, but later determined it had been accidental. The story of Amy's life leaves us with many unanswered questions to consider. But her example as a relentless and resilient artist, actress, community leader, and prophetic orator stands out to me above the controversy. Her tenacity to utilize theater in a time when acting was considered evil and building a life of public speaking in a time when women were silenced and marginalized, I find courageous. 
I'm inspired by Amy's prolific creativity, which served her to compose nearly 200 songs and hymns, operas, and dramatic oratories, even in the midst of crippling circumstances. I find her ability to draw racially and socially diverse audiences together in a time when divisions were sharply defined to be an important example for us today. But perhaps most of all, I love seeing how Amy defied all of the odds against her and through living out the divine invitation in her heart, she created a movement larger than anything she could have imagined. Thank you for listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. Please follow us on Instagram at Makers and Mystics and leave us a kind review on iTunes. See the show notes of this episode for links to join our creative collective and to support the production of this podcast. We'll see you again next week with another full interview episode.